Chapter Thirty of Babbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Thirty. One. The summer before, Mrs. Babbitt's letters had cracked with desire to return to Zenith. Now they said nothing of returning, but a wistful, "I suppose everything is going to be all right without me." Among her dry chronicles of weather and sickness, hinted to Babbitt that he hadn't been very urgent about her coming. He worried it. If she were here and I went on raising Cain like I've been doing, she'd have a fit. I gotta get hold of myself. I got to learn to play around and yet not make a fool of myself. I can do it, too. Folks like Verge Gunch will let me alone and Myra'll stay away, but poor kid, she sounds lonely. Lord, I don't want to hurt her. Impulsively, he wrote that they missed her, and her next letter said happily that she was coming home. He persuaded himself that he was eager to see her. He bought roses for the house. He ordered squab for dinner. He had the car cleaned and polished. All the way home from the station with her, he was adequate in his accounts of Ted's success in basketball at the university. But before they reached Floral Heights, there was nothing more to say and already he felt the force of her stolidity, wondered whether he could remain a good husband and still sneak out of the house this evening for half an hour with the bunch. When he had housed the car, he blundered upstairs into the familiar talcum-scented warmth of her presence, blurring, "'Help you unpack your bag?' "'No, I can do it.' Slowly she turned, holding up a small box, and slowly she said, "'I brought you a present, just a new cigar-case.' I didn't know if you'd care to have it. She was the lonely girl, the brown appealing Myra Thompson, whom he had married, and he almost wept for pity as he kissed her and besought, Oh, honey, care to have it? Of course I do. I'm awful proud you brought it to me, and I needed a new case badly. He wondered how he would get rid of the case he had bought the week before. And you really are glad to see me back? Why, you poor kitty, what you been worrying about? Well, you didn't seem to miss me very much. By the time he had finished his stint of lying, they were firmly bound again. By ten that evening it seemed improbable that she had ever been away. There was but one difference, the problem of remaining a respectable husband, a Floral Heights husband, yet seeing Tannis and the bunch with frequency. He had promised to telephone to Tanis that evening, and now it was melodramatically impossible. He prowled about the telephone, impulsively thrusting out a hand to lift the receiver, but never quite daring to risk it. Nor could he find a reason for slipping down to the drugstore on Smith Street, with its telephone booth. He was laden with responsibility till he threw it off with the speculation, Why the deuce should I fret so about being able to phone Tanis? She can get along without me. I don't owe her anything. She's a fine girl. But I've given her just as much as she has me. Oh, damn these women and the way they get all tied up in complications. 2. For a week he was attentive to his wife, took her to the theater, to dinner at the Little Fields. Then the old weary dodging and shifting began, and at least two evenings a week he spent with the bunch. He still made pretense of going to the Elks and to committee meetings, but less and less did he trouble to 
have his excuses interesting less and less did she affect to believe him he was certain that she knew he was associating with what floral heights called a sporty crowd yet neither of them acknowledged it in matrimonial geography the distance between the first mute recognition of a break and the admission thereof is as great as the distance between the first naive faith and the first doubting as he began to drift away he also began to see her as a human being to like and dislike her instead of accepting her as a comparatively movable part of the furniture and he compassionated that husband and wife relation which in twenty-five years of married life had become a separate and real entity he recalled their highlights the summer vacation in virginia meadows under the blue wall of the mountains their motor tour through ohio and the exploration of cleveland cincinnati and columbus the birth of verona their building of this new house planned to comfort them through a happy old age chokingly they had said that it might be the last home either of them would ever have yet his most softening remembrance of those dear moments did not keep him from barking at dinner yep going out a few hours don't sit up for me he did not dare now to come home drunk and though he rejoiced in his return to high morality and spoke with gravity to pete and fulton bemis about their drinking he prickled at myra's unexpressed criticisms and sulkily meditated that a fellow couldn't ever learn to handle himself if he was always bossed by a lot of women he no longer wondered if tanis wasn't a bit worn and sentimental in contrast to the complacent myra he saw her as swift and airborne and radiant a fire spirit tenderly stooping to the hearth and however pitifully he brooded on his wife he longed to be with tanis then mrs babbitt tore the decent cloak from her unhappiness and the astounded male discovered that she was having a small determined rebellion of her own three they were beside the fireless fireplace in the evening georgie she said you haven't given me the list of your household expenses while i was away no i haven't i've made it out yet very affably gosh we must try to keep down expenses this year that's so i don't know where all the money goes i try to economize but it just seems to evaporate uh, i suppose i oughtn't to spend so much on cigars don't know but what i'll cut down my smoking maybe cut it out entirely i was thinking of a good way to do it the other day start on these cherub cigarettes and they'd kind of disgust me with smoking oh i do wish you would it isn't that i care but honestly george it is so bad for you to smoke so much don't you think you could reduce the amount and george i notice now when you come home from these lodging and all and sometimes you smell of whiskey dearie you know i don't worry so much about the moral side of it but you have a weak stomach and you can't stand all this drinking weak stomach hell i guess i can carry my booze about as well as most folks well i do think you ought to be careful don't you see dear i don't want you to get sick sick rats i'm not a baby i guess i ain't going to get sick just because maybe once a week i shoot a highball that's the trouble with women they always exaggerate so george i don't think you ought to talk that way when i'm just speaking for her, your own good 
I know, but gosh, all fish hooks, that's the trouble with women. They're always criticizing and commenting and bringing things up. And then they say it's for your own good. Why, George, that's not a nice way to talk, to answer me so short. Well, I didn't mean to answer short, but gosh, talking as if I was a kindergarten brat not able to tote one highball without calling for the St. Mary's ambulance? Fine idea you must have of me. Oh, it isn't that. It's just I don't want to see you get sick, and my, I didn't know it was so late. Don't forget to give me those household accounts for the time while I was away. Ah, oh, thunder, what's the use of taking the trouble to make em now? Let's just skip em for that period. Why, George Babbitt, in all the years we've been married, we've never failed to keep a complete account of every penny we've spent. No, oh, maybe that's the trouble with us. What in the world do you mean? Oh, I don't mean anything, only sometimes I get so darn sick and tired of all the routine and the accounting at the office and expenses at home and fussing and stewing and fretting and wearing myself out, worrying over a lot of junk that doesn't really mean a doggone thing, and being so careful and, good Lord, what do you think I'm made for? I could have been a darn good orator, and here I fuss and fret and worry. Don't you suppose I ever get tired of fussing? I get so bored with ordering three meals a day, three hundred and sixty-five days a year, and ruining my eyes over that horrid sewing machine, and looking after your clothes and Roans and Ted's and Tinkas and everybody's in the laundry, darning socks and going down to the piggy-wiggly to market and bringing my basket home to save money on the cash and carry-in. Everything. Well, gosh, with a certain astonishment. I suppose maybe you do, but talk about here I have to be in the office every single day while well, you can go out all afternoon and see folks and visit with the neighbors and do any blinkin' thing you want to. Yes, and a fine lot of good that does me, just talking over the same old things with the same old crowd while you have all sorts of interesting people coming in to see you at the office. Interesting? cranky old dames that want to know why I haven't rented their dear precious homes for about seven times their value, bunch of old crabs, panning the everlasting daylights out of me, because they don't receive every cent of their rentals, by three g.m. on the second of the month. Sure, interesting. Just as interesting as a smallpox. Now, George, I will not have you shouting at me that way. Well, it gets my goat the way women figure out that a man doesn't do a darn thing but sit in his chair and have lovey-dovey conferences with a lot of classy dames and give them the glad eye. I guess you manage to give them a glad enough eye when they do come in. What do you mean? Mean I'm chasing flappers? I should hope not at your age. Now, you look here. You may not believe it. Of course, all you see is fat little George Babbitt. Sure, handyman around the house, fixes a furnace when the furnace man doesn't show up, pays the bills, but dull, awful dull. Well, you may not believe it, but there's some women that think old George Babbitt isn't such a bad scout. They think he's not so bad looking, not so bad that it hurts anyway. And he's got a pretty good line of guff, and some of them even think he shakes a darn wicked walkover at dancing. Yes, she spoke slowly. I haven't much doubt of that when I'm away. You manage to find people who properly appreciate you. Well, I, I just mean, he protested with a sound of denial. Then he was angered into semi-honesty. 
You bet I do. I find plenty of folks and doggone nice ones that don't think I'm a weak-stomached baby. That's exactly what I was saying. You can run around with anybody you please, but I'm supposed to sit here and wait for you. You have the chance to get all the sorts of culture and everything, and I just stay home. Well, gosh almighty, there's nothing to prevent your reading books and going to lectures and all that junk, is there? George, I told you I won't have you shouting at me like that. I don't know what's come over you. You never used to speak to me in this cranky way. I didn't mean to sound cranky, but gosh, it certainly makes me sort of get the blame because you don't keep up with things. I'm going to. Will you help me? Sure. Anything I can do to help you in the culture-grabbing line. Yours to oblige, G.F. Babbitt. Very well, then. I want you to go to Miss Mudge's New Thought meeting with me next Sunday afternoon. Miss who, which? Mrs. Opal Emerson Mudge, the field lecturer for the American New Thought League. She's going to speak on cultivating the sun spirit before the League of Her Higher Illumination at the Thornleigh. Oh, punk! New Thought, hash thought, and a poached egg cultivating it sounds like why is a mouse when it spins? That's a fine spiel for a good Presbyterian to be going to, when you can hear Doc Drew. Reverend Drew is a scholar and a pulpit orator and all that, but he hasn't got the inner ferment, as Miss Mudge calls it. He hasn't any inspiration for the new era. Women need inspiration now. So I want you to come, as you promised. 4. The Zenith branch of the League of the Higher Illumination met in the smaller ballroom of the Hotel Thornleigh, a refined apartment with pale green walls and plaster wreaths of roses, refined parquet flooring, and ultra-refined frail gilt chairs. Here were gathered sixty-five women and ten men. Most of the men slouched in their chairs and wiggled, while their wives sat rigidly at attention, but two of them, red-necked meaty men, were as respectably devout as their wives. They were newly rich contractors who, having bought houses, motors, hand-painted pictures, and gentlemanness, were now buying a refined ready-made philosophy. It had been a toss-up with them whether to buy new thought, Christian science, or a good standard high church model of Episcopalianism. In the flesh, Mrs. Opal Emerson Mudge fell somewhat short of a prophetic aspect. She was pony-built and plump, with the face of a haughty Pekingese, a button of a nose, and arms so short that despite her most indignant endeavors, she could not clasp her hands in front of her as she sat on the platform waiting. Her frock of taffeta and green velvet, with three strings of glass beads and large folding eyeglasses dangling from a black ribbon, was a triumph of refinement. Mrs. Mudge was introduced by the president of the League of the Higher Illumination, an oldish young woman, with a yearning voice, white spats, and a mustache. She said that Mrs. Mudge would now make it plain to the simplest intellect how the sun-spirit could be cultivated, and they who had been thinking about cultivating one would do well to treasure Mrs. Mudge's words, because even Zenith, and everybody knew that Zenith stood in the van of spiritual and new-thought progress, didn't often have the opportunities to sit at the feet of such an inspiring optimist and metaphysical seer as Mrs. Opal Emerson Mudge, who had lived the life of wider usefulness through concentration 
and in the silence found those secrets of mental control and the inner key which were immediately going to transform and bring peace power and prosperity to the unhappy nations and so friends would they for this precious gem-studded hour forget the illusions of the seeming real and in the actualization of the deep-lying veritas pass along with mrs opal emerson mudge to the realm beautiful if mrs mudge was rather pudgier than one would like one's swamis yogis seers and initiates yet her voice had the real professional note it was refined and optimistic it was overpoweringly calm it flowed on relentlessly without one comma till babbitt was hypnotized her favorite word was always which she pronounced always her principal gesture was a pontifical but thoroughly ladylike blessing with two stubby fingers she explained about this matter of spiritual saturation there are those of those she made a linked sweetness long drawn out a far-off delicate call in a twilight minor it chastely rebuked the restless husbands yet brought them a message of healing there are those who have seen the rim and outer seeming of the logos there are those who have glimpsed and enthusiasm possessed themselves of some segment and portion of the logos there are those who thus flicked but not penetrated and radioactivated by the dynamis go always to and fro assertative that they possess and are possessed of the logos and the metacycles but the word i bring you this concept i enlarge that those that are not utter are not even inceptive and that holiness is in its definitive essence always 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 wholeness and it proved that the essence of the sun spirit was truth but its aura and affection were cheerfulness face always the day with the dawn laugh with the enthusiasm of the initiate who perceives that all works together in the revolutions of the wheel and whose answers the strictures of the soured souls of the destructionists with a glad affirmation it went on for about an hour and seven minutes at the end mrs mudge spoke with more vigor and punctuation now let me suggest to all of you the advantages of the theosophical and pathanistic oriental reading circle which i represent our object is to unite all the manifestations of the new era into one cohesive whole new thought christian science theosophy vedanta bahaism and the other sparks from one new light the subscription is but ten dollars a year and for this mere pittance the members receive not only the monthly magazine pearls of healing but the privilege of sending right to the president our reverend mother dobbs any question regarding spiritual progress matrimonial problems health and well-being questions financial difficulties and they listened to her with adoring attention they looked genteel they looked ironed out they coughed politely and crossed their legs with quietness and in expensive linen handkerchiefs they blew their noses with a delicacy altogether 
optimistic and refined. As for Babbitt, he sat and suffered. When they were blessedly out in the air again, when they drove home through a wind smelling of snow and honest sun, he dared not speak. They had been too near to quarreling these days. Mrs. Babbitt forced it. Did you enjoy Mrs. Mudge's talk? Uh, what did you get out of it? Oh, it starts a person thinking. It gets you out of a routine of ordinary thoughts. Well, I'll hand it to Opal. She isn't ordinary, but gosh, honest, did that stuff mean anything to you? Of course, I'm not trained in metaphysics, and there was lots I couldn't quite grasp, but I feel it was inspiring. And she speaks so readily. I do think you ought to have got something out of it. Well, I didn't. I swear I was simply astonished the way those women lapped it up. Why the dickens they want to put in their time listening to all that blah when they— It's certainly better for them than going to roadhouses and smoking and drinking. I don't know whether it is or not. Personally, I don't see a whole lot of difference. In both cases, they're trying to get away from themselves. Most everybody is these days, I guess. And I certainly got a whole lot more out of hoofing in a good lively dance, even in some dive, than sitting looking at my collar that was too tight, and feeling too scared to spit, and listening to Opal chewing her words. I'm sure you do. You're very fond of dives, no doubt. You saw a lot of them while I was away. Look here. You've been doing a hell of a lot of insinuating and hinting about lately, as if I were leading a double life or something and I'm damn sick of it, and I don't want to hear anything more about it. Why, George Babbitt, do you realize what you're saying? Why, George, in all our years together, you've never talked to me like that. It's about time, then. Lately you've been getting worse and worse, and now finally you're cursing and swearing at me and shouting at me, and your voice is so ugly and hateful. I just shudder. Oh, rats, quit exaggerating. I wasn't shouting or swearing either. I wish you could hear your own voice. Maybe you don't realize how it sounds. But even so, you never used to talk like that. You simply couldn't talk this way if something dreadful didn't happen to you. His mind was hard. With amazement, he found that he wasn't particularly sorry. It was only with an effort that he made himself more agreeable. Well, gosh, I don't mean to get sore. George, do you realize that we can't go on like this, getting further and farther apart? and you ruder and ruder to me. I just don't know what's going to happen. He had a moment's pity for her bewilderment. He thought of how many deep and tender things would be hurt if they really couldn't go on like this. But his pity was impersonal, and he was wondering, wouldn't it maybe be a good thing if, not a divorce and all that, of course, but kind of a little more independence? While she looked at him pleadingly, he drove on in a dreadful silence. End of chapter 30